Hello, everyone. This is Michael Govier from the Cinema 9 Podcast, and you are listening to Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 217, The Shining Movie Review. McBrien here along with Derek Myers and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Last time out, we held our pop culture fantasy draft for the year 1980. We're going to get to the results from that draft as well. Um, our, our, our judges have rendered their verdict, so we're going to get to that and then we're going to be reviewing the 1980 film The Shining, nominated by Derek. Uh, but before we get to all of that, Derek, my friend, what pop culture have you been able to get to in this past week? So, Chris, you know how you're always saying new movies are terrible. They're all remakes, <laughs> no, sequels, I don't based say on that. comic books, and, oh, and those kinds of things. I never say that, do I? I, I once or twice, I think. Uh, you maybe once or that. twice, yeah. Well, because it's me, true. But okay, go ahead, please. Let me tell you. We yeah. went to the theater this week mm -hmm. and we saw an original movie that was absolutely outstandingly fantastic. Oh, boy. It's called tell, was it? Everything Everywhere All at Once. Hmm. Does it sound familiar to you at all? Have you seen the trailer? No, I haven't seen the trailer, but the, the title sounds familiar for some reason. I don't know why. Why do I know that? Uh, probably because it's amazing and people are talking about how great it is. Hmm. Um, so it's uh, the movie um, stars Michelle Yu, and it stars the, the guy from the Goonies, the, the Chinese kid from the Goonies, Ki... Hugh Kwan, yes. I think is how you pronounce his name. Yes, he was He's also in, in Temple it. of Doom. Yes. This is like one of his first movie roles in like 20 years. Oh, yeah. He's in this. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is in it as wow. the villain. And um, it's fantastic. The, the basic uh, premise is that um, uh, Michelle Yeoh's character is, you know, a, a slightly older Chinese lady who has not had the greatest life. Her, you know, her dreams have not come true the way she hoped they would. She's got a failing business. She's got a family where she's, uh, you know, having problems with her children and she's now taking care of her ailing father. And it's, it's, there's a lot of problems in her life. And what ends up happening is, um, she discovers, and I don't want to give too much away because I, I strongly recommend people see it. And the, the, the less, you know, about the, the specific details, the better, but the idea is that anytime you have an opportunity in your life to make a decision. Do I turn left or do I turn right? Do I take a job? Do I not take the job? Do I, you know, have this for dinner or that for dinner? Every time you make a decision, two parallel universes split off. And if you decide to go right, that is one universe. And if you decide to go left, that is, and this is like a, a concept in physics, quantum physics. So the idea in this movie is that actually happens. And through the course of the movie, she discovers this. And as shenanigans start to ensue, she's able to tap into the memories of herself from these parallel universes. So like when she's 
assaulted by bad guys, she's able to tap into a universe where she decided to study martial arts and suddenly she can fight them. And then in another universe, she has to do computers or another situation. She has to do computer stuff and she taps into a form of herself that became like a computer person. And, and it's just this really creative concept about how to tell this story. And there's just a lot going on. And because you're constantly pulling from these parallel universes, a lot of the performers get to play themselves in just slightly different altered ways, which I've got to think for an actor is a fantastic opportunity. And it was great. It's, I mean, I'm, sh I'm sure I'm not doing this thing justice in my description of it, but if you're looking for an original story that isn't a sequel, that is an IP that you already are familiar with in some other form, that is not a Marvel Comics, that is not a Harry Potter, that is not a, a familiar property. This is an original idea. It's fantastic. We saw it in the theater. I loved every minute of it. It was great. I can't wait to see it again when it comes out uh, either on home video or on Blu-ray. Super duper good. Can't recommend it highly enough. A plus. It's called Everything Everywhere All at Once. And uh, it was great. A plus for sure. So, so when you mention about how it's, you know, you, you have a decision make and you go this way or you go this way and different things could happen. It reminds me of that movie Run Lola Run from 1999. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. I, I've never seen it. It's on my PVR. It's oh, one of those God. ones that I've always wanted to watch and I have yet to uh, to take it in. We need to go back and watch that one. It's phenomenal. Yeah. Oh, you would love it. So, yeah. So. Yeah, so this one was really, really good. Uh, another thing that I've been watching is season two of the TV miniseries The Flight Attendant, which stars um, Kelly Kyoko, who most people know as Penny from The Big Bang Theory. Um, the first season was nominated for a bunch of awards. Uh, it was pretty good. I think it was based on a book. This second season, I don't know if it's also based on a book or not, but you get a lot of the same characters. It picks up right where the first season left off. I think it's supposed to be like one year later. There's only a few episodes that have come out so far, but I'm really enjoying it. If you if you watch the first season and you enjoyed it, I think you're going to like the second season. They, they really just made a logical next step. It wasn't some, um, you know, sometimes with some of these shows, they, they opt for a second season and you're like, oh, the magic from the first season is not really there. But so far... Uh, I'm three episodes in. I'm, I think it's great. And so I would certainly suggest checking that out if you're looking for something to watch, especially if you've already watched the first season. And then the third thing I watched this week was a documentary. Oh, a documentary, you say? For 40 days and 40 nights, watch documentaries. He likes to learn about the world. It's Derek's Documentaries. Derek's Documentaries. Lay it on us. All right. Dropping on Netflix this week, the documentary is called White Hot, The Rise and Fall of Abercrombie and Fitch. And you're probably thinking, hey, Abercrombie and Fitch, I know them. They're a clothing line, or they used to be, or I guess they technically still are. Yeah, that's what we're talking about. So the documentary basically focuses on the 90s and the early 2000s when Abercrombie and Fitch, as a, as a store, as a brand, as a design Hit the, hit the popular culture, and it was just everywhere. The stock shot through the roof, and it was everywhere, and it was, what do they call it, aspirational. Like, everyone wanted to own the products, wear the products, be like the people in the ad. It, it became, part of the reason it became so famous was because it had these, like, risque ads where it was a lot of men with no shirts on. And... So the documentary starts to starts by giving you sort of the background. This is what the company is. This is what the company was trying to do. This is why the company was successful. And then, of course, you realize, hey, 
they only hire beautiful people and mostly just white beautiful people. Well, what if I'm not one of the, quote, beautiful people or what if I'm not white? And what was happening was they were either not hiring people who were not, you know, did not meet their standard of beauty or they would hire them and give them like the most demeaning jobs in the store, not let them interact with customers, hide them in the back. Like the one one girl of color that's in it, she talks about how they always had her washing the windows and sweeping the floor. And eventually a lot of people that were clearly discriminated against, despite what the company said, brought a lawsuit against them and that changed everything. And it's, it was an interesting take. I mean, trust me, there's no surprises in this documentary. It goes exactly where you expect it to go. Many people are probably familiar with the story if they're of a certain age, but uh, it was interesting. I mean, you know me, I like a documentary. And um, so I would say it's probably sort of middle of the road, like maybe a, a high C, like CC plus if I had to give it a score. Um, it's not that long either. I think it's a little under 90 minutes. And um uh, I actually found that for me, part of the reason I enjoyed it so much was when they were recapping the period of time when the company was at its peak was sort of that early to mid nineties through to the early to mid two thousands. And that was when I was at university and I moved out on my own for the first time and I had my first job and I got my first place. And so for me, it was a certain amount of nostalgia that came with watching this documentary. Um, even just like hearing the music that they chose and, and like, even like, not that I ever worked at Abercrombie and Finch or wore Abercrombie and Finch. Honestly, it was not a brand that appealed to me. Cause I'm not like, you know, all buff and ripped like I am now. <laughs> like me. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I, I couldn't even say that without laughing. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, it was interesting. It is what it is. And, um, you mentioned the songs in it. Did they use that song? I remember there was a song called summer girls that came out in 99. One of the lyrics was, I like girls that wear Abercrombie and Fitch. Yep. That's all. That's the only thing I know about. Yeah. The company. No, that, they definitely talked about that. Yeah. How, how the, the brand like just became a huge part of the pop culture phenomenon. And uh, no, it was good. I, I mean, I enjoyed the documentary. It's, it's getting sort of mediocre reviews, but I, you know, it was new. I, when every time I see like Netflix or Amazon shows me like new documentary, I'm like, well, let's give it a shot and see what it's like. And believe me, there's been a few I've had to turn off, but no, this one, it, it was fine. It was middle of the road, but it was interesting, but I certainly didn't really learn anything. You know, sometimes you'll learn something from a doc you watch. You're like, wow, I didn't know that, that about the dolphins that way. Or it's like something you don't necessarily know a lot about. This one went exactly where you expected it to go. I don't think it's much of a spoiler, but, um, it's full of beautiful people and you get to see where a lot of the uh, the models that were a part of the big campaign where they are now, which was kind of interesting. So anyway, it's it's on Netflix. Most people have Netflix. You're looking for 90 minutes or less to kill some time. Give it a shot. Cool. Uh, so, Derek, I got something for you. So this week uh, I received notification from an editor that our podcast is going to be featured in an upcoming online magazine article. Ooh. Uh, any guesses as to what the organization is that's writing the article on us? Keep in um, mind, keep in mind that we're young and we're hip, and you know we're with it and all that stuff. I'm guessing it's uh, uh, a magazine called "Stay Off My Lawn: Old Men Who Don't Like Change in Pop Culture." Very, very close. It's the AARP. <laughs> Do you know what that is? No, I don't. It's the American Association of Retired Persons. Oh, geez. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they reached out to me. They're like, we'd like to feature your podcast in one of our articles. Uh, can we, can you send us like some artwork <laughs> you know, that we can put in the thing? I'm like, yeah, sure. Here you go. 
I would just like to also mention this is the second time that we've been featured in an article by the AARP. So it's not WKRP. No, it's AARP. Maybe because I like WKRP so much that I'm being featured in AARP. I'm not really sure. But uh, for Chris, are you sure this is for real? Did they ask you to send nude photos of yourself or like <laughs> pictures of your feet or or anything weird to go along with this no, article? No, they're they're actually going to be featuring us in an article for the AARP. So go and, and did did they give you any more detail than that, or it's no, going to be? I'll a let you know when it's out, and I'll mention it okay. here on the podcast for sure. All right. it's, be it's obviously an article for for us older folk, and and, and us older folk, I got to tell you, like this. Here's your dad joke of the week. So I thought since your movie this week, The Shining, is based on a Stephen King novel, that I would do a Stephen King dad joke for you. Okay. And everyone, of course. Okay. So Derek, why do you never buy just one Stephen King novel? Hmm. I have no idea. Because misery loves company. Oh, terrible. Star Trek could always see into the future, couldn't they? What do you have that we can slap Star Trek logos onto? Shatner's hair. The toys that made us. The T.J. Hooker hair. T.J. Hooker. I could have auxiliary power back in a few minutes. Yeah, no, I I, I really like it. Con! Why don't I give you a quick scan to make sure you're okay? Kirk got around a little bit. Go. Do you need a tranquilizer? Oh, my God. Now, before we get into our movie review of The Shining, we have a little bit of business to take care of. So, last episode, we held our pop culture fantasy draft for the year 1980. We draft a team of three movies, three TV shows, three songs, and a personal pick. And we send off our lists to our, our esteemed panel of judges. And they've returned a verdict. So, uh, how do you think that you did, Derek? Uh, I, I'd like to think I, I'm holding out hope that I might have won this one, but if I did, I imagine it's by a slim margin. So mm -hmm. I'm I'm going to say I won by one. Oh, that's good. Well, coming into the end of the last week, I was leading our fantasy draft standings four to one, with with I would point out a popular vote total of thirty two to twelve. So, yeah, you keep you keep citing that stat. The popular vote doesn't matter. It's just the four to one. That's that's all we need to focus on. It's all good. So I now last week, if you remember, I did wave the coin toss. I gave you the first overall pick, which you used, of course, to draft the blockbuster and clear number one pick, The Empire Strikes Back. But did it help you to secure a win? So, Hope so. let's find out. Sloth, our producer behind the glass, will you please reveal the winner? of the 1980 pop culture fantasy draft. The winner is... Derek. Ooh, congratulations, my friend. You take home the Funko Fonzie trophy. You won six to three in our panel. Oh, nice. Judges. Yep. I do a little exit poll after we post the uh, mm -hmm. after we post the episode. I know a couple of the I don't know who all the judges are, but I know a couple of them. And so when we do this, I usually reach out to them and say, hey, after you vote, would you mind telling me which list you voted for? So the two people I reached out to after a couple of days both came back and said they had voted for my pick. 
so I was like, well, okay, that's promising. Although one of them was like, I was really on the fence and this was this and this was that. And I thought, oh boy, I hope a lot of people aren't like that. I hope that they felt there was a clear winner, but, uh, awesome. I'm, I'm happy. I'm, I was yep. a little worried you were going to go up to five, five to one and it was going to be all uphill from here. I mean, nope. it's still uphill from here, but, yep. uh, Funko if I remember correctly, yeah, sorry, if I remember correctly, we've got three of the four years we have, we have four years left, right? Three of the four years left. We are all, are all together. Isn't it like 86, 87, 88? Yeah. And 83. Yeah. So, and, and personally for me, I feel that I'm going to do better in those later drafts. Mm -hmm. Like I think 89 was the draft I won previously. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that, and I think we talked about that before we did any of these, which was part of the reason I picked these early ones first. Cause I thought, well, I want to have that strong finish. So we'll see. We'll see. Even though I gave you that first overall pick because I waved the coin toss and you know, I love our panel of judges. They're good and they're wonderful people, but they got it wrong. I got to tell you, we all make mistakes. I, I really thought that I had a, a stronger list, but you know, when you win some and you lose some, that's what drafting is all about, but it's all good. So you're pulling closer. You're getting there. So, Closing the gap. Yep. Okay. So let's move on to the shining. So of course, after we do our, our fantasy draft, then we each get to pick a movie from that year that we're going to review. You went with the shining. So yep. you picked this movie, which was a little bit surprising, I think to some people, because for a couple reasons, number one, uh, you normally don't like horror movies that much. And the other thing is, is though, although I love all these old movies, I had never seen The Shining. I've seen bits and pieces of it here and there. So I was actually really, really happy to finally get a chance to see it. So before we get into it, maybe you just want to give us a quick sort of overview of why you decided to go with sure. this movie. Like, like I say, you don't like horror movies. So it seemed like, a, like right. an odd pick for you. Well, so, and I, I, I drafted this as my personal pick in last week's fantasy draft. So mm -hmm. I, I'll, I'll repeat a little bit of that was, I remember seeing this movie when I was really young. Definitely. It was probably one of the movies I saw too young, you know, leaning on one of the topics we did a while back. Yeah. And when I mentioned to my wife that I was watching, she said the same thing. She goes, Ooh, I probably saw that movie too young as well. Um, and like you said, I'm, I'm not a big horror movie fan. And so seeing it as a little kid, there were definitely a lot of parts that really freaked me out. And so I watched it when I was younger. It scared the crap out of me. And it was many years later when I watched it again. Uh, but by then I was a little more of a savvy movie watcher. I was able to appreciate more of the artistry. I, I by then I knew like, oh, well, Stanley Kubrick is a great director and he has this great body of work and he's he's renowned. And Jack Nicholson is this like, you know, this big deal actor. And, and so as I watched it more and more as I got older and I, like I probably probably seen it six or seven times which is not a lot for me you know me sometimes i'll come out of this pod and go i've watched mm -hmm. this movie 30 times right i've probably seen this in its entirety maybe five or six times before this week but every time i watched it again it was years after the previous watching and every time i watched it again i picked up something new or i had been able to read something about the making of it or i read some of the trivia of it or i i, I read something where it's like oh watch for these things and every time i did i picked up new details about the movie and in a way, it's sort of like Raging Bull in the sense that I didn't really care for Raging Bull, but I could really appreciate the craft the the director put into the movie, the choices that he made, the way the movie was shot. And for me, The Shining was a lot like that, too. Although I wasn't in love with the horror aspects of it, I'm not a big fan of Stephen King's books um, as a film, as the way that Kubrick put it together and some of the choices he made. I just started to appreciate that more and more and more every time I rewatched it. Uh, and, it, and again, this week I just was in awe of how the movie was shot. And as I was watching it this week, I felt that 
I, I don't think calling this a horror movie is necessarily the right categorization. It certainly treads upon that horror genre. It's definitely more like almost like thriller, suspense, drama slash horror. Like it's calling it a horror movie and just dumping it into that category. Like for me, horror movies are more like blood and guts and stabbing and mm. insane amounts of violence or body horror where there's like mutations and people ripping apart bodies. Like you don't have anything like that in The Shining. So much of what's in The Shining is the absence of that, the isolation, the 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 mental breakdown that the characters have and the the music is such a huge part of setting the tone of this. And yeah, there's that supernatural element and it's like, oh, well, are they ghosts or is it like is it these spirits or what are they, you know, are these hauntings? Like, what is it? And that's not clearly explained I, deliberately, like you sort of left to interpret a lot of that on your own. But but um, no. So that's that's part of the reason that I wanted to review it. That's part of the reason I picked it as my personal pick, because I've sort of had this love hate relationship with this movie that has become more love and less hate over time. And I wanted to watch it again because I hadn't seen it in a long time. And I knew that I was going to get something new out of it. And I definitely feel that I did. And I've got a lot of points I want to talk about. So with that in mind, how did you like it? You said you were going to get your wife to watch it with you. Did the two of you watch it together? Yes. So she actually watched it with me. She was quite excited because she's like, oh, I'm going to be able to finally watch a decent movie. So I would say that it was good. It was good, man. It was good. But the thing was, for me, it wasn't like it wasn't a classic I really believe that that's kind of where it sits with the general public. I mean, you know, like the, I think a lot of people think it's really, really good, but it's not like this like outstanding film. I mean, any movie that that stars Jack Nicholson is directed by Kubrick and based on a Stephen King novel. It's going to have some legs. Yeah, you know? it's got and, some pretty impressive pedigree. Yeah, and it was a good film. But like I say, it wasn't a great film, at least not to me. I think you mentioned last week that Stephen King wasn't happy with the movie. Any idea yeah, that- why? I think uh, so. Now, I again, I'm not a fan of Stephen King's writing. He's I, I mean, I, I I'm a big reader, my, not so much now. But when I was younger, I read a ton of stuff. And a lot of my, my peer group read a lot of Stephen King books and loved, loved, loved them. And I just I never could get it partly again because Stephen King writes horror. And I knew that wasn't a genre I really cared for, uh, for the most part. And my understanding from people who have read the book and from what I read about Stephen King's comments that have been, you know, the, the quote on the record comments was he didn't feel that it was a true enough adaptation to the the book that he wrote. He didn't feel that that some of the themes were carried through in a way that he felt were were accurate. Um, and I know that the ending of the movie was changed quite a bit from the ending of the book. And I think that obviously, uh, you know, artists can be very territorial and possessive of their art and in especially the case writers of, well especially yeah. right and if if a book gets turned into a movie a lot of times the writer just collects a check and they sign it over and then the studio does what they want with it and you hear so often where you know people say well the book was better than the movie or the author will say yeah i didn't really care for that adaptation they didn't really hit the right strides and it's like well if it takes you 20 hours to read a book and they condense that into a 90 minute movie, of course they've got to make changes and cut stuff out. And of course, some of the subtlety is going to be lost. And of course, some of the themes aren't going to be as prevalent. It's just the, the medium you're working with. And I, I I assume that's all of the combined, all that stuff, that's where Stephen King landed. He didn't feel it was true enough to his, his original book. He didn't feel that his view of it and Kubrick's view of it were similar enough. Um, and so he's been on record 
quite quite uh, adamantly on record over the years that it's just it's one of his least favorite adaptations of his book. And he was very vocal at the time of just saying, like, I disown my association with this. And it's like, well, you know, that's unfortunate. But I'm sure he still cashed a paycheck. <laughs> so it was directed, obviously, by Stanley Kubrick, uh, starring Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, Scatman Crothers, and Danny Lloyd. It was made on a budget of $19 million. It took home $44 million at the domestic U.S. box office. So that was good for 12th place in mm-hmm. ticket sales in 1980. 1980 was a pretty decent year for movies, if you think. There was The Empire Strikes Back, number one, obviously. And it was like it was like double number than the second yeah. film, well, which course. was nine to five. And then you got Stir Crazy, Kramer versus Kramer, any which way you can. That was a top five. Mm-hmm. So The Shining was 12th. Um, and it was just ahead of Cheech and Chong's next movie, Caddyshack and Friday the 13th. So, and then a little bit further down the list, you got Flash Gordon and Bronco Billy and Raging Bolt. It was a pretty good year for right. movies. There were some good yep. movies in there. Unlike you, I actually read a lot of Stephen King stuff when I was younger. But the thing was, I never read this one. You know, hmm. like he was, he was so damn prolific as oh, an yeah. author. Like he just put out so much stuff. I mean, you, I just couldn't read it all. So, so when I was coming into this movie, I was wondering about the title. I was even thinking about it, you know, like as, cause I, I knew the broad strokes of the movie, you know, that, you know, this guy goes and looks after this, this, this hotel and it's over the course of the winter and he's going to go crazy, you know, just from mm-hmm. isolation and stuff like that. So I, I understood all that. And so I kept thinking, uh, even in the opening credits and stuff, I was thinking, oh, this movie should be like called Isolation or like, yeah. or The Lonely Guy, you know? I mean, that was a Steve Martin, Carl Reiner movie, which was, uh, that was a movie that was really good too. But by the way, I'm going to get you to watch that one, one of these times, The Lonely Sorry, Guy. Sorry, which one? The Lonely Guy with Steve Martin. Oh, yeah, I don't think so I've seen good. it. Oh, I'll get you to watch it. But anyway, so the opening shot, uh, like I was mentioning, the car going up that mountain road, Yep. That's some pretty incredible cinematography. And my wife was like, oh, I want to go there. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I would never go there. Here's the thing. I don't know if you know this about me. I hate heights. I don't even like driving up roads on big hills. I went on a family vacation last summer to northern Quebec. We went up like whale watching. I almost barfed just driving through all these big hills. You know, it's like you're on this road on the side of a cliff. I would never go to the Overlook Hotel. Which is probably a good thing, too, because, I mean, people die there. You know? So, so see, my paranoia is a, a good thing, apparently. But uh, and the other thing during that opening shot, too, my wife made a comment. She's like, the credits look weird. Yeah, I, actually, I noticed that, too, is that the credits scrolled yeah, they're upward. Yeah. Which, <laughs> excuse me, for a movie, at, like at the end of the movie, credits will often scroll. Yes. Um, but to see that with the opening credits seemed a little bizarre because now pre 1980, a lot of movies, if not most or all movies, the the majority of the credits were at the beginning. And I guess at some point, probably in the mid eighties, they started putting them at the end. And I think largely because movies became more of a big deal. You needed more people to do stuff. Like think of star Wars, how long the credits are for that Mm -hmm. because they had so much special effects and they had so many people they needed to give credit to. And I, I, that's probably why they started putting the credits at the end. But so many of the older movies, when you watch them, the credits are right at the beginning. But again, it used to be just like title cards. Here's the one that says who was the stars. Here's the one that says who were the the behind the scenes. Here's the people who actually shot the movie. Here's the, the you know, and you have all that. And and this movie was was similar, right? It had all that stuff mm-hmm. at the beginning, but it was like this scroll. Instead of just the names appearing and fading away, they were scrolling upward. And I thought, that's kind of strange, especially because it was done over a scene 
where the camera was moving. Like, I think it wouldn't have been as jarring if it was simply a shot, a static shot of like right. a house or a community or of a tree or of a landscape. A very scenic opening yeah. shot too. Like, yeah. It's it funny was that you mentioned, like, sorry, it's funny yeah. that you mentioned Star Wars, you know, uh, having lots of people in it. So they put had to put the credits at the end because Star Wars was one of the first, the first film that I remember that had no credits at the beginning. Got Lucas in trouble too, if you remember. Yeah. So, so this movie opens up with Jack Nicholson. He's going up there. And he goes to this job interview to stay at the Overlook Hotel for the winter and like be the caretaker. And then Shelly Duvall stays home with her son and her and her son are sitting in the living room of their apartment and he's eating a sandwich and she's got a smoke going. Yeah. Like the ashtray is like right in front of him. (laughs) And then also when they drive up to the hotel, the kid's like standing up in the back seat with no seatbelt on. So between the secondhand smoke and the lack of the seatbelts, kids were really thrown to the wolves back in the 70s, weren't they? Hey, my, my, my mother smoked, and I can remember standing on the back of the seats when she was driving us places as well. So it's it was of its time. I didn't, honestly, I didn't think anything of it I because I lived through it. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about the cast in this film. We'll start with Shelley Duvall. She is one weird-looking human being. Yeah, I mean, she can certainly act. I'll give her that, but... She is not an attractive woman. I'm I'm sorry. I mean, I, I that's I, I hate to be so judgy about like after talking about the Abercrombie Finch documentary where it's like, you're not beautiful enough to work here, but you know, yeah, she's not an attractive woman, but uh but goddamn can she act. She she is a phenomenal. She's got an interesting performer. voice, I think is a yeah. big thing of her. But she didn't she didn't work a lot though. I mean she did this and she did Popeye in the same year and she did Annie Hall, but that's all I know her from. I think Hollywood just didn't know what the hell to do with her. You yeah. know, because she, like you say, she's not that stereotypical kind of Hollywood leading lady kind of type. But, well, uh, and and as much as uh, like her performance in this was, I thought was very good. It's unfortunate that given the time in which the, the book was written and the movie was set, they didn't really give her anything to do. Like she was just the, the damsel in distress the whole time. She was running around crying and screaming. And it, it's it was unfortunate that a movie that really only has one male adult, one female adult and one child in it. It's like the female adult is given so little material. Like if this was to be, if this, if this was to be remade today or they were to use, you know, inspired by the shining, the female character would have so much more would be such a more developed and rounded character. It was, that was one of the things that really bothered me this time through was watching it with sort of the today's, the 2022 lens was, man, the, the woman character in this just is like thrown to the wind and just does not have a lot to do, which is unfortunate. Yeah. So Jack Nicholson, obviously. I can't decide if he was the right actor for this part or not. And I know that sounds crazy. I mean, it's Jack Nicholson. You know I mean? He's a legend, right? I mean, you know, and he pulls off the whole psychopath thing obviously really, really well. But for me, there was just, there was just something. I, I couldn't quite put my finger on it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like, do you think he was perfect for this part or was there something a little bit off? Maybe it was just- well, I, I, I think he did a great job in this part, but I was mm-hmm. reading through some of the backstory and apparently the original, one of the things that the original casting people, I can't remember if Kubrick himself was in this discussion, was they said, if they had someone who was a little bit more subdued a little more of an everyman like jack nicholson is pretty intense and yeah. when when he plays like mean and crazy like you have no there's no doubt that he is cuckoo bananas 
And, and I think that's part of the reason he works so well as the Joker in the 1989 Batman. Like when he goes full Joker, you believe it. And I, I think I have to agree with what I was reading about the backup backstory. Of this was they felt if they had an actor in this role that was a little more subtle and sort of down to earth, the transformation would seem that much more, uh, you know, would, would be that much more incredible. Whereas with Nicholson, it's like, Oh, look, he goes crazy. You're like, well, yeah, he's Jack Nicholson. Of course, we kind of expected him to go crazy. Like, and I don't know if that's something now looking at his whole career, because he had so many roles like this in the later part of his career where he just went nutso. And it's like, oh, yeah, of course, he does it in every movie. But like, this was probably one of the first ones where he had that kind of villainous persona. So I don't know if it's which came first. Was this... Like if, if I had seen this in the eighties, would I feel that way? Or do I feel that way now? Because I've seen what he's done in the 30, 40 years since then. So like there's, there's a scene when the, when the mom and the boy are playing outside and there's a shot of him and he's just like staring at them and watching them play. Yeah. And it's all like super sinister looking and stuff. I think regardless of the role that he plays, Nicholson always has this kind of sinister vibe about him. Yeah. You know? And I think maybe that's the thing I didn't like about him being in this role I think it would have been better to see somebody play this part that was totally sane and normal yeah. to begin with and then then what you do is you witness their slide into madness it's a little yes. more unnerving you know yep. like I haven't read the book so I can't speak to the source material but Nicholson's descent into madness it's not very it's not like it like it's not very unpredictable I agree. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, I mean, he, if you think about his character, he, he's a known drinker, right? He abused his child previously. He swears at his wife. He's a total jerk, you know? And so to see him like turning insane, it's not a huge stretch, you know, that, that, that has to happen here. I think personally, it would have been more interesting to see someone more mild mannered, you know, slowly yeah. going insane here. Someone, someone like, like Bob Balaban. <laughs> That sounds crazy, but I, I think he would have been is. the perfect casting. He, he was in um, Close Encounters. Uh, he, um, oh, you probably know him the best from Seinfeld. He was the, the head of NBC, Russell Dalrymple, that guy. He was also in uh, in Midnight Cowboy. Like, like uh, something like him, like very mild mannered, but a good actor that could like pull off like going crazy. I don't know. That's mm -hmm. what I thought. I thought Nicholson was like crazy right from the get go. So it was like, okay, so he's going crazy from being here. Well, he's already a jerk and a, and a, and a butthole. So I don't know. Let me ask you this. What if the gender roles had been reversed? What if everything else about the story was the same? Mm -hmm. Jack Nicholson is this, this professor who's now wants to be this writer and he's looking for this isolation and it's Shelley Duvall's character that starts to go mad. Like, I think that to me would be a more interesting story. And I think that's probably how they would frame it if they were doing it now. Mm -hmm. But I don't think in 1980, obviously Stephen King and Stanley Kubrick, neither one of them would have, would have or did go down that path. And I don't necessarily know if audience would have been interested in a movie like that, but it, that that's sort of an interesting what if uh, mm -hmm. moment, right? So be interesting. Yeah. I just, I, I thought Nicholson was a bit wrong for it. So I want to also mention uh, Scatman Crothers. Yeah. I love Scatman Crothers. He was in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, also with Nicholson. He was in and Zapped. Yes, yeah, I, that's the thing. I'm used to seeing him in more, like, lighter roles. Yeah. You know, like, he was the voice of Hong Kong Fooey. He had such a great voice. My God. I remember him, too, from Bronco Billy, and he was on The Love Boat, 
And then, like you mentioned, he was on, he was in Zapped. I mean, he was Dexter Jones. I mean, remember his line? He was like, first Help come me the Mr. women. Einstein. Then come the, he goes, he was, what did he say? First comes the women, then come the whiskey. We call it the devil's double whammy. You know, like it was, it was amazing. God, he was good. And, um, and, and for those people out there that, that don't love Zapped or they don't love Hong Kong Fui, I think he's probably best known for this movie. Wouldn't you think? In oh, his career? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Um, no, this, um, uh, it, and again, I think he's, I think he's in it just enough. Like, I think if his character was in it more, it wouldn't have the same punch. Like the fact that he's sort of in it near the beginning, he he helps with a little bit of the setup. He establishes the whole idea of the shining. He's the first one to call Like he's the one who defines it. This, this touch of the spirit, this ESP, this, you know, you have the force kind of thing. And he calls it, you know, he says, my grandmother called it shining. Some people shine and some people shine brighter than others. And, and uh, he's the one who, who, in the context of this story uses that term. So I, I think he's an important part of this movie. And I, and, and I like that he's in it just as much as he is. The scene when he's laying in bed and he's watching the news. Oh, by the way, surrounded by artwork of naked black women. I may add. <laughs> My wife was love like, the what? hair. What's this? You know, these afros and everything. Yeah. Um, that, that's when he gets that shining and he realizes something's going on. Something's bad with the kid. You know, that look of horror on his face my god it that might have been one of the most terrifying parts of the whole movie because i didn't think it was all that much of a horror either but that scene that look on his face like he makes this movie work like uh, uh, and especially later when he gets the axe in the gut but i mean like oh my god yeah i know i i think uh i think he was really important so danny lloyd i wanted to mention too because he only had three movie roles he had this he was in Will, the autobiography of G. Gordon Liddy, which was a made-for-TV movie back in 82. And then he was in a movie called Doctor Sleep in 2019. Oh, that was the sequel to this, yeah. Oh, it was. Oh, that's yeah. What it is. So it, it, it's based on the book that was a sequel to The Shining, but it's also based on the movie that was The Shining. Yeah, it was not great. Remember? It has, uh, Ewan McGregor plays him as an adult. Oh, I gotcha. Um, I don't know if you, you remember when we went to Fan Expo. Back in 2016, you and I were there. Um, Danny Lloyd was there too. He was at the end of the celebrity. Remember all the celebrity tables were up on the second floor? And at the very end, there was him and there was the kid from The Omen. And neither of them were getting any traffic. And I think the thing is, no one knows what they look like as grownups. You know, yeah. I mean, it could have been anyone. Like, yeah. I remember when I went to that, uh, the Fangoria Weekend of Horrors back in 91. And the guy that played Jason from Friday the 13th was there and it was like, how do you know it's him? He, yeah. He, he was wearing a goalie mask in the movies. It could have just been anybody. So for me, it was kind of the same thing when Danny Lloyd was at fan expo. Like I kind of felt sorry for him in a way, you know, like he, but, but he was fantastic in this movie. Yeah. He was really good. Really important. Like you mentioned, um, Scatman Crothers being in it just enough and, and having a really important pivotal part in this movie. I thought Danny Lloyd, like his performance was key to this movie working as well. I Agreed. So. Agreed. It's like we talk, I mean, I don't think he did as good a job as the kids that were in ET, but like we just talked about ET a few episodes back, how right. the, the performances of the children were pivotal to that movie working. And this same thing, if you didn't believe that this kid had this ability and was terrified at the right moments and like when when 
Tony, the little, the, the invisible boy that lives in my mouth that where he used the finger, hey, Mrs. Torrance, like if you didn't believe all that, like it wouldn't work. And and he's, he's, he sells it. Like Kubrick was able to get this performance out of this young kid and it was great. Another guy I wanted to mention was Tony Burton. So he was the mechanic guy that Scatman Crothers calls up when he wants to rent the snowcat to go up there. I recognized him right away. I was say, he was, was he in Rocky? He was in the Rocky movies. He was like Rocky's assistant trainer, but he was also in Stir Crazy. So I don't know if you remember Stir Crazy, but he was the guy that was in that prison holding cell that Gene Wilder and, uh, and Richard Pryor first go into. And Gene Wilder is like following this imaginary fly and he swats it off this guy's bald head. That was him. And he's like, there it is. Right on the end of your nose. And he punch goes to punch him. I recognized him right away. So <laughs> anyway, he, he's kind of stood out to me. Um, something you mentioned earlier, I just want to come back to, about how stylistic this movie is with some of yeah. its shots and stuff like that. The the shot of the of the kid driving his big wheel oh, around iconic. the balls. Iconic, yeah. Like the camera follows him like it's positioned really, really low, and it goes right behind him. I do not know how they did that shot. I, maybe some sort of dolly of some kind. Like they said, I, they used they said they used a wheelchair. That was, you know, it's funny. I was saying to my wife, I said, I wouldn't be surprised if they had a cameraman holding a camera in a wheelchair and someone was pushing him around. That's exactly what they did. That makes perfect sense. I, yeah. I, oh, I said that to her. I, because it's a great shot. But it's not even just the visual of it. It's. When he's riding it, the sound the big wheel yes. makes, and when it's on the carpet, it's muted. And then there's the one scene where he goes from hardwood to carpet to hardwood to carpet. Yes. And and you really pick the, the the sound in this movie and the music in this movie is so key. And it's like that just helps to sell this scene of just how isolated and quiet. Like, although we have a score through the majority of this movie, if there are only three living people in a building that size for months on end, the silence is going to really start to play tricks on you. You're going to start to imagine you hear things. And so just the the sounds that this kid on a big wheel makes, that mm. if the kid was just on a normal street playing with his friends, you, you wouldn't be able to pick up the sound that that well. But the fact that there's literally nothing else making noise but this kid pumping away on this big wheel, and you can hear it and then not hear it and then hear it and then not hear it, it just it just adds so much to the scene. So not only that shot, <clears throat> the other one that, that stood out to me was there, this overhead shot they did when Shelley Duvall and the kid first go out and they walk around the maze. Oh, yeah, right. The shot is like way, way overhead, but it's not on a helicopter because it's it's a still shot. And it, it, it almost looks like it's too high for a crane unless, I don't know, maybe what they did was they put it on a crane and then zoomed way out. I don't know, but it's very stylistic, very, very cool. So I, I think... You know, overall, the movie looks good, you know, and then there was also all that monochromatic colors in the yes. rooms and the bright lights in certain scenes. Like, yeah, the movie looked really, really good. I thought mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. one of the things that I sort of picked up on or, or, you know, again, every time I watch a movie that I've seen before, I try and pick up new details. And so there's the scene I just talked about where Scatman Brothers is talking to the little boy and he talks to him about Shining. You know, my grandmother called it shining and some people shine and some people don't. And he even says some places shine and some places don't. And the implication is that this, again, we'll call it ghosts or supernatural or spirits or whatever it might be. He talks, he pretty much talks to the kid and says like, these things exist and they can exist for good or for bad. 
He doesn't use those exact words, but that's the meaning. At least when I watched it this time, that was the meaning I got out of it uh, based on what he literally says and based on what he's sort of implying. And so clearly he has the shining power and the little boy has the shining power. There's no doubt about that. But what sort of occurred to me, and you know, it's like I was this many years old when I watched it this week was I think Jack Nicholson's character also has this shining and the it's it, think of it like the force. It's like, he's got the dark side, whereas the other two people have the light side. And like, to me, that was, that was my, the way I interpreted it. That was my explanation for, well, how does Jack Nicholson see this phantom bartender and drink these phantom drinks and interact with these ghosts or spirits and, and all these things. It's like, well, you could say that the building is haunted and the ghosts are appearing to him. Sure. But I, the more I saw it this time through, I started to think to myself, what if he's supposed to also have this shining power and he's just sort of tapping into the wrong end of it? So I don't know. I, maybe I'm wrong, but that that was sort of something that I really, really sort of struck me when I watched it this time through. Mm-hmm. Interesting, because I, I automatically went the other way and just thought it was like ghosts, you know, and things like that. Coming. So I most of these movies always have questions. So I have a couple questions for you. So there's a there's a point when the storm comes. Uh-huh. And the phone lines are down, but the TV channels are working. So keep in mind, this is before cable TV or satellite or Netflix. Right. There was VHF and there was UHF and you had an antenna on the top of your TV back in the day and you had to be close to a TV tower. And if there was a storm, there was no TV, but they're sitting there watching TV. And I thought, this is weird. I don't know. That's not going to be up to me. Um, and the other question I had was, shouldn't this kid be in school? Yeah, I thought that too. Um, because at at the beginning when they have the, the doctor come to the apartment and she, the mom gives a little backstory of, oh yeah, you know, we've recently moved here and there was this incident and then we've been homeschooling them. So I think that's sort of the implication is that Danny's being homeschooled, um, and, you know, the fact they established that Jack Nicholson's character was a teacher, I think that's supposed to lend some credence to the fact that his father is a qualified teacher. So the fact that he is being homeschooled mm. is is not necessarily a bad thing. I don't recall really, ever seeing either one of them or, or him or Shelley Duvall homeschooling him. But no, mm. no, not at all. But uh, again, you could you could also argue that. The kid is still pretty young. Like I can't mm-hmm. remember if they gave his exact age, but I got the sense he's only supposed to be like maybe six years old. So that'd be what, like senior kindergarten, grade one ish. Yeah, so he'd still be in grade one or grade two. Yeah, you think, yeah. Right? So yeah, I don't know. It's, also, uh, like you mentioned there, when the doctor came, I thought it was interesting. So the doctor comes, and then they, the, her, the doctor and the mom go in the other room, mm-hmm. and then the mom opens up and says, "Oh, there was this time when you know my husband lost his temper." and like dislocated the kid's arm by ripping it out of the socket. And, you know, he used to drink a lot. Now he promises me he won't drink anymore. And I'm, and I'm turning to my wife. My wife's a social worker. I'm Mm -hmm. like, this wouldn't happen now. Right. She's like, you'd have to report them. And like, like, you know what, what is she doing? Like, I just, just give me another smoke. (laughs) It's like, like times are so different. It was so weird. Yep. So, yep. Um, Oh, I wanted to mention, um, when the kid goes into room 237, 237. Yep. And he comes out and his sweaters ripped, right? And his neck is like all covered in welts. Yeah. And then the wife of course thinks, you know, Jack Nicholson did it. And then he's like, well, I think the kid did it to himself. Mm-hmm. And then Jack Nicholson goes into 237. What the living hell was that all about? 
Like there's this yeah. really attractive and, and very naked woman in the room and he kisses her and then she turns into this old woman that was all like, was that like rotting flesh? Like, was she dead? Like, what the hell was that all about? I yeah, I think know. that's I think that's exactly it's just supposed to be this evil ghost or spirit that's that's, you know, uh, the, the representation of a dead person or they don't really explain it much they yeah, uh, weird like, you know yeah you, you start to you start to get the sense that there's some bad stuff going on here like mm-hmm. i don't know if that was supposed to be the mother of the two little girls because they talk about how she was killed as well and it seems that 237 is the room where they were staying um yeah i i, I didn't really re- read too much into it it's just like Okay. You mentioned the bartender. I want to go the loop back to him for a second. That was the actor from Blade Runner, right? Yes. Tyrell? Yeah, he yeah. plays Tyrell in Blade I Runner. Recognized yeah. him. I so, recognized his voice before I recognized him his appearance and I was like, oh, yeah. That scene when when Jack is alone with the bartender. Mm-hmm. Totally reminded me of the movie that you made me watch, Passengers. Yep. When exactly. Chris Pratt was with the bartender in that movie, I don't yep. know if it was an intentional homage to The Shining. Absolutely, but it, it was. Sure seemed like it when yep, I watched. It this. totally was. Yeah. And even the even the layout of the 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 bar in Passengers is very reminiscent. The color scheme is very similar. Yeah, they've that was definitely in the trivia for Passengers. How uh, the the people who made the movie Passengers were certainly influenced by The Shining and, and pulled little details from it. It's not. It's certainly not the only time that this movie has been um, paid homage or spoofed in some way. You oh, had yeah. reached out to me and you were like, hey, before we do this, watch The Simpsons Season 6, Episode 6, Treehouse of Horror. So I watched it tonight. Yep. I had seen it maybe, you know, years and years and years ago. So I did watch it. And... Uh, and yeah, so did you want to mention that at all? Yeah, well, and again, I've probably seen that Simpsons episode 20 or 30 times, and whereas I've only seen the movie, you know, six or seven times. And it's been a long time since I watched either one uh, of the movie or the Simpsons episode. But of course, as I'm watching The Shining, in the back of my mind, I'm remembering the scenes from The Simpsons. And so, of course, after we finished watching this, I had to go and I looked it up. What season is it? What episode is it? And I watched it again. And just some of the lines are so funny where Mo is like, uh, uh, he offers Homer a beer and he's like, you want a beer? You got to kill your family. And he's like, well, why would I do that? And he's like, because you'd be much happier. Well, you don't look very happy. He's like, oh, I'm happy. Try la 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 la. Now go kill your family. And uh, no, it's just it's. The Simpsons has a really good way with those treehouse of horrors. When they do a parody or a spoof or an homage of something, they really seem to be able to hit the nail on the head of sort of like some of the scenes and and just make them over the top ridiculous. <laughs> Family Guy does this yeah. as well, um, but they tend to go in a slightly more um, they go in a di- tend to go in a different kind of direction when they do their spoofs. Mm-hmm. And they've done some Stephen King ones, but they did not do The Shining. But uh, no, it was. It's like when um, so I've mentioned before on the, on the podcast, I do not watch movie trailers for movies that I know I have every intention of seeing. So good example this weekend. The latest fare from Marvel Comics is the Doctor Strange movie. I'm going to see it partly because I like Doctor Strange, partly because I saw the first Doctor Strange movie, partly because it's a Marvel movie. I'm going. They have my money. I don't want to see a trailer because I don't want to know anything about it going in. I know it's going to I have a certain set level of expectation i'm just going to give them my 10 or 15 bucks and i'm going to enjoy it but after i watch the movie i usually come home and watch the trailer and sort of go oh geez well like how did they sell this movie what did what would i have known from the trailer going into this movie that i'm glad i didn't see and there's always a ridiculous amount of spoilers 
But that was sort of how I felt with this shining is after I watched the shining, I almost felt like it was a little reward. Now I'm going to go back and watch that Simpsons parody and see like which of the broad strokes of this two and a half hour movie do they use in a five minute Simpsons cartoon. And, uh, and I think that really emphasizes what are considered the most classic scenes, the most memorable scenes of this movie. So the thing I liked about the Simpsons episode was when, uh, they were describing, I think it was like Smithers and Mr. Burns were, were describing to Homer the things that have happened here. Oh, you know, there was a guy that killed his wife and he killed his kids and this and that. Oh, and we've also had John Denver here. And then he's like, what? Oh my God, the horrid John Denver. <laughs> so I thought it was kind of funny. Um, <laughs> so that was good. I wanted to um, just mention a couple more things. So there's a scene when, when Jack Nicholson goes into the gold room and it's full of people having a party. Yes. And there's all these like flappers from the Roaring Twenties. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, you and I have talked before about how much smoking goes oh, on yeah. in these old 80s movies that we watch. But my God, every single person in the Roaring Twenties party was smoking. And you know, like we watch these movies and some people in the 80s smoked. Apparently everyone in the 20s smoked. Yeah. Like, no wonder their life expectancy was like 50 you know, yeah. back then. Like, but it's. It's funny you bring that up because this week I listened to a podcast where they were reviewing the movie A League of Their Own because it's having its 30th anniversary this year. Yeah. And that was one of the nitpicks someone had was for a movie that's supposed to take place during World War II, there was not nearly enough people in the movie smoking. And and the one guy was like, well, it's supposed to be a family movie and it came out in the 90s, so they didn't want to depict that. And the guy's like, that's BS. They were trying to make a lot of this movie historically accurate. And I like it was sort of the opposite of what we always say, where it's usually I can't believe everyone's smoking. And his nitpick was I can't believe not enough people in this movie were smoking, given when the movie was supposed to take place. So it's just kind of funny that you bring that up again. And, and I had heard the exact opposite argument of that earlier this week on a podcast. So um, was like, oh, even when um, Scatman Crothers calls the cops to check in on the hotel, the cop is like smoking a cigar. Yeah. While he's at work. <laughs> oh, my God. So the the thing, the scene, too, when, when Shelley Duvall goes in and finds what he's been work, writing on, like work, working on his, on, his, mm-hmm. on his novel, mm-hmm. all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Yep. And again, just to go back to what I said before, I think his descent into madness would have worked just so much better if he, if he didn't start off quite as scary and intense. Yeah. You know, because even that, that whole scene is, is kind of hinges on her horror at the fact that he's losing it, you know, and it would have just been so much better. I think it would have, um, you mentioned the music too. the music, I think, is what made a lot of it kind of creepy and stuff. And then she yeah, I was th- think, sorry, I was thinking about this when I was watching it mm-hmm. this time through was if you had an opportunity to watch this movie without the score. I, I think your experience would be mm-hmm. vastly different. I I think oh, I don't sure. want to say it wouldn't be scary movie, yeah. because I think the absence of sound would be a whole new way to appreciate this movie and the silence and the why he starts to have this descent into madness, whether it's because the ghosts are prodding him or whether it's because of the isolation or whether he's already mentally unstable. But I think I think a lot of people when they watch this, they don't take that into consideration that there are like this massive hotel would have like almost no background noise and it would be incredibly overwhelming to people who are not used to it. 
So she starts to see the ghosts at one point because she goes upstairs and she sees the uh, the guy in the bear costume performing a sex act. I'm assuming on the bartender. That's what I think was going on. I don't yeah, apparently that's something from the book, and and that was one of the criticisms I read about the movie is in the book it's it's covered. Uh, you know, I, not that I read the book, but they were saying in the book you learn more about the history of the hotel and they start to learn more about the different people. And then you find out that, you know, way back when there was this guy, he had this homosexual relationship with this other person, but he always had him dress up in animal costumes. And so in the movie, none of that backstory is no. revealed. So when she just sees this, you're like, what the heck is yeah. this? Is and obviously she's freaked out partly because she doesn't expect to see anybody. But the fact that she sees this guy in this weird Halloween costume, it just seems out of place. And that, that was a big criticism. A lot of people had was it doesn't really seem to add any value at this point in the story. They could have easily just cut that out and just had her run up and even not show what she sees, just have her reaction. Like she looks that way and screams. Mm -hmm. The audience can fill in the blank and go, well, she's clearly seeing something that she shouldn't be seeing. And then she runs off. Like you didn't need to put that in there. It just, then, it seemed to her. Yeah. Cause then she sees the guy with the head wound and the drink. Mm -hmm. And then she sees all the skeletons all there. So I, I, I assume like now she's able to see all the ghosts and stuff. I don't know. And then she sees the, the, the flood of blood coming from the elevator. Now I mentioned that last week. When I, when I saw the movie trailer back in 1980, I always thought that was just like a promo, a promotional thing, you know, for the movie. And I didn't really think it was in the movie, but it was, it was in yeah. there several times. They yeah. kind of went back to it. And it was then, even in the Simpsons parody. Oh yeah. The blood usually stops at the second floor. <laughs> right. And then kind of the end of the movie, obviously the kid escapes and he goes into the maze and I liked how he covered his tracks. I yeah. thought that was pretty smart. And then, but then Jack Nicholson just kind of runs out of steam and just dies from freezing to death. Mm -hmm. And it felt like it was a little bit anticlimactic to me. Yeah, I agree. You know? Yeah. It, it seemed, it seemed like he sort of gave up a little too easily, but I don't know, it just, it just seemed like there wasn't that big monster moment at the end. It was almost like at the, at the end of jaws. If you ever read the book jaws, the way not. the shark is supposed to die is it finally just is exhausted and just dies. And Spielberg, when he went to make the movie was like, well, I, that's that's anticlimactic. I can't have that happen. I gotta have a big moment. So he had it chewing on the uh, on the uh, the CO two canister, and then it gets shot and blows up, and that's huge. And this movie didn't go that way. It just it just kind of just runs out of gas and dies. So um, now I read that I read that there were some extra scenes that were supposed to be at the end of the movie that were shot and were actually included in the movie in the theatrical release. And then after about a week, Kubrick had it had them pulled. And it was like there were supposed to be scenes where it, it it takes it's like one week later and the little boy's in the hospital and he's recovering and and the mom's there and the you know the boy like it's clear that they've sort of gotten past this issue mm -hmm. and the police are there sort of taking her statement and they say, you know, we've gone up to the overlook and there's no sign of your husband anywhere. And so the the implication is like, hey, what happened to him? Did he live? Did he die? Whatever. And then it cuts to that scene where you see him in the picture and you're like, oh, he's become a ghost or maybe he was a ghost all along. Oh. Or, and and Kubrick's like, you know what? He just didn't feel it was working. And the fee initial feedback from some of the audiences was like, we don't really get it or this is unnecessary. And so he he literally cut the last couple of scenes out of the movie. So I, and I didn't know that I was just reading about it this week. So I'm sure those scenes are available on one of the super duper extended DVD Blu-rays or possibly even on YouTube or some other uh, 
some other, you know, the Criterion channel has a lot of stuff on their website. So if you're well, super keen about it, I'm sure it's out there somewhere. And with that ending, I'm curious, you know, like that, that waiter, uh, Grady, he was the guy that killed his family, right? Yes. While he was watching the place. So is it just that everyone that dies there joins the ghost there? Like, I mean, like that was a thing, right? Because like you mentioned at the very, very end, it zooms in on that picture mm-hmm. of the ballroom party. And Jack Nicholson is in the picture. And so then you wonder, like, so was he always there? Or is it, did he just join the ghosts after he died? I mean, like, what was your takeaway on the end? Yeah, I don't know. I, and that's, that's, I mean, personally, I like it when a movie leaves it open. Yeah. I like that for you to assume. And I don't know if it's more clearly defined in the book or not. But, yeah, I don't know. I, I never really definitively decide one way or the other. I just like the ambiguity of it. Yeah. So, like I said, overall, I thought it was uh, it was good, but it wasn't great. It was flawed. That's what I'll say. Yeah, but it's definitely uh, as someone who can appreciate filmmaking, it's mm-hmm. like I think that's really where it shines. Again, it, it reminded me of, of what I was saying about Raging Bull. I don't, mm-hmm. I'm not a big fan of the movie Raging Bull, but I certainly can appreciate the artistry. And with this one, I actually enjoy this movie a lot more. And again, I can really appreciate the the work and effort that went into it, the stylistic choices, the way it was shot, the music cues. There's a lot of technical things to really enjoy about this movie. And the performances were great too. Mm-hmm. So. I would say Raging Bull was much better of a film than this. That's just my no. opinion. So would you give it a, out of 10? We always like probably uh Probably an eight. Seven and a half to eight and a half, but I'm just going to say probably an eight. Let's just land right on an eight. Interesting. So I'd probably give it about a seven and a half. Yeah. So, so we're pretty close. We're all pretty close. All right. Yeah. So well, we were in agreement on that. So let's move on to fun with caveman. All right. There is a game around here that we like to play, as you know, and I thought that we would play this game uh, again this week. So as long as you're okay with this, it's something that we, we've done from time to time and I like to call it. Pick the flick. Yeah, pick the flick. You get the synopsis, then pick the flick. You get the year, pick the flick. Last time we played this game, you said I was being too hard on you. So I'm going to go nice and easy. Really? I don't I don't remember. What was the theme the last time? Uh, I can't remember, but you were like, I, I thought you would get more of them and you didn't. So, oh. so I thought I'm going to make it easy on you. You're going to get every single okay. one of these. Okay. So okay. Our, our pick the flick. This is the Stephen King edition. Oh boy. Okay? Oh, maybe All of these they movies. They have to be pretty easy because I'm not great Stephen King. Well, yeah, I know you didn't read a lot of his novels, but I mean, these are all these movies are based on Stephen King novels. Okay. okay. So you, you know okay. the movies, yeah. right? So I'm going to give you the year and the synopsis. Tell me the movie. And they are all Stephen King novels. Okay. So we're going to start with 1990. Okay. After a famous author is rescued from a car crash by a fan of his novels, he comes to realize that the care he's receiving is only the beginning of a nightmare of captivity and abuse. That would be misery. Okay, 1976, a shy, friendless teenage girl who's sheltered by her domineering religious mother unleashes her telekinetic powers after being humiliated by her classmates at her senior prom. Was that um, Carrie? 
Yes, the one that I mentioned that I watched on my my flight, if you remember that. Mm-hmm. Okay, 1983, a friendly St. Bernard contracts rabies and conducts a reign of terror on a small American town. That would be Cujo. See, I told you, you're going to just like kill this week, okay? 1983, a nerdish boy buys a strange car with an evil mind of its own and his nature starts to change to reflect it. Um, geez, is that um, Christine? Was that the name of the car? Yes, yes very good. Uh, Stephen King really likes these one-word titles, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the he knows three, The last three have all started with the, the letter C, like a Cujo and Christine and Carrie. Okay, 1989. After tragedy strikes, a grieving father discovers an ancient burial ground behind his home with the power to raise the dead. Uh, was that uh, Pet Cemetery? See, you're killing it. Okay, yeah. let's keep this easy stuff going. 1994, two imprisoned men bond over a number of years, finding solace and eventual redemption through acts of common decency. Yeah, one of the best movies ever made, Shawshank Redemption. All right, 1986, after the death of one of his friends, a writer recounts a childhood journey with his friends to find the body of a missing boy. That was uh, Stand By Me. Told you you're going to get them all. This is a good movie, too. Oh, fantastic. 1987. In a dystopian America, right up your alley, Derek. I really like this. Yeah. Where's this going? (laughs) A falsely convicted policeman gets his shot at freedom when he must forcibly participate in a TV game show where convicts, runners must battle killers for their freedom. Oh, was this um, Schwarzenegger and uh, Richard Dawson? What the hell was that one called? Running Man? The Running Man. All right. 1990. In 1960, seven preteen outcasts fight an evil demon who poses as a child killing clown. 30 years later, they re- reunite to stop the demon once and for all when it returns to their hometown. Uh, I think that was it. I think they remade that like a couple of years ago, but I'm going with the original made yeah. for TV movie. Okay, 1984, a couple is trapped in a remote town where a dangerous religious cult of children believes that everyone over the age of 18 must be killed. Jeez, that does not sound familiar at all. No idea. What's children of the corn? Sure it was. Children of the corn. Okay, 1983, by the way, a lot of movies around 1983 based okay. on Stephen King novels. We've had like five of them already. Okay, 1983. A man awakens from a coma to discover that he has a psychic ability. No idea. What's oh, the dead zone? The dead zone. Again, 1983. Sure. 1983 was basically Return of the Jedi and a whole bunch of Stephen King novel movies. No right? kidding. Yeah. Okay, 1984. 
A couple who participated in a potent medical experiment gain telepathic ability and then have a child who's a pyrokinetic. Right. Yeah, no, that's uh, it's Drew Barrymore, right? That's um, uh, Firestarter. 1985, a stray cat is the linking element of three tales of suspense and horror. Hmm. We've already had Pet Cemetery, so it's not that. Um, I don't know. No idea. Also starring Drew Barrymore, it was Cat's Eye. Cat's Eye. Sure. Wow. There's a bunch here I've never even heard of. Wow. Last one. 1985. In a small town, brutal killings start to plague the close-knit community. Marty Coslaw, a paraplegic boy, is convinced the murder's are the doings of a werewolf. Oh, does this have one of the Corys in it? Um, it does. Yeah, it's, uh, oh, geez. Is Nick Nolte in this too, I think? I believe he is. Yeah, I've definitely seen this one. This is, it's a werewolf one. It's called, I think it was called Silver Bullet. Yeah, you got nice. it. You got it. Nice. <laughs> I remember seeing in that where Nick Nolte goes and he's like, my grandson's just discovered the Lone Ranger and he needs a silver bullet because he doesn't want to sound like a wackadoodle and say, like, I need a silver bullet to kill a werewolf. And that's how he gets the local guy to make him silver bullets. I thought, oh, that's clever. So anyway, looking at these for a two year period between 1983 and 1985, all they did was make Stephen King movies. No kidding. Like wow. unbelievable how many they made when you, when you actually step back and, and look at them all. It's not crazy. You did really well. You did really good. Well, the ones I didn't get were just simply ones I've never heard of. So, and honestly, I would say of the list you ran through, I've probably only seen five of them. But you're familiar with them, you know, and I think. Well, I mean, I worked in the video store, so some of them I know. And even though I didn't read Stephen King books, they were very popular. So I I like, I know he wrote a book called It. I haven't seen the movie, but I'm, I know it has a, you know, the horror clown in it. So the book is really good. That was one of the books I read when I was a teenager of his. It was really, really good. Um, okay, so it's over to me to pick a movie from 1980 for us to go back and, and to watch and review here on the show. Now pick something that we can find, dude. Don't pick like really yeah, something super obscure. It's going to be I a one-sided been, podcast. You, yeah, you've been getting on me lately. You're like, you're going to pick this movie. You're going to make me watch this thing and blah, 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 blah. And I'm not going to like it. Yeah, I'm going to make you I'll watch. I'll I'm watch gonna, whatever. I just need no. to be able to find it somewhere. I'm, I'm going to make you go back and watch the 1980 film My Bodyguard. Okay? Now... I've mentioned before that I love this movie. It's a very personal film of mine. Like, I loved it very much. It's got Adam Baldwin and Ruth Gordon and Martin Mull. And, of course, my, one of my all-time favorite Canadian actors, Chris Makepeace, is in it. And it's available on YouTube. You really? Can watch the whole movie on YouTube. So you don't even have to worry about finding it somewhere or paying money to, to rent it. So you can watch, watch it right on YouTube. Um, I mentioned before, in around that time I was 10 years old, I moved to a new town. And so I related to this this movie because I was bullied. And this movie is all about bullies and how this kid moves to a new town, gets bullied, and decides he's going to take a stand and he's going to do something about it. And let me tell you, it's a small film. It's a little film, but it's very realistic. It's very gritty. And it's just amazing. And I really, really hope that you're going to find the magic in it too, even all these years later, you know? Okay. But it's 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 quite good. 
quite good, quite a moving film. Yeah, there it is on um, on YouTube. Yep. One hour and thirty six minutes. Yep. A whole movie available for the whole free. movie's available on YouTube for free. So fantastic. Okay, I'll give. I mean, I I. The only reason I have any familiarity with this movie is because mm. you've mentioned it a bunch yeah. of times. Otherwise, it's so good. Never, I didn't know anything about it. Never heard of it. So I'll watch it. It's going to be completely fresh. I don't know anything about it other than what you just described. So we'll give it a watch. We'll come back next week. We'll talk about it. Hopefully, yeah. we get more than just you know one listener. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, uh, I, I I think there's there's enough people out there that uh, that like Gen X movies that know this movie. And okay. I remember even when I was at um, uh, Fan Expo in 2016, like I mentioned before. I went to the Cusacks uh, mm-hmm. Q&A and, and this was Joan Cusack's first movie that she oh. was ever in. And they were talking about it and like the, the the fans were going nuts. Like they all knew it. Yes, we know my bodyguard. It's so good. It's, it's, a, it's a very special, special movie. I really believe that. And I think that uh, when you watch it, you're going to be like, wow, it's, it's an impactful film, especially the end. The, the ending scene is one of my favorite ending scenes of any movie that I've ever seen. So okay. I think you're going to like it. I, I mean, who knows? You come back and maybe. All right. It. Well, I'll give it a try. I mean, yeah. I got a week. Uh, give it a shot. It, build it up. Yeah. Anybody else that wants to watch it, like I say, it's on YouTube. It's free. Give it a watch. If you have, if you haven't seen it for years or if you've never seen it at all, give it a chance to watch and, and come back and uh, we will review it. But until next week, this is myself, Chris McBrien on behalf of our producer Sloth and Derek Meyer saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. 